He is an NBA writer and reporter for SB Nation's Nets Daily and the co-host of the Wingspan Podcast. We now welcome Chris Mahalan onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Chris? Doing good, guys. How about yourself? Doing really good, man. Thanks for joining the show. And uh, as we discussed off-air, um, the Nets have no shortage of questions to ask. So I, I want to hop into the, the latest breaking news concerning LaMarcus Aldridge. And I saw a comment regarding Kevin Durant in terms of you know that heartfelt message he had regarding just um, LaMarcus Aldridge starting retirement from the NBA. So do you have any insight just regarding how the team's feeling regarding what happened to Aldridge? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so sure thing. So first with Lamarcus, you know, it's it's a scary situation overall, right? And it's something that um, it's a blessing in disguise. Obviously, in his situation, he was 35 years old, and he came to the Nets to a well, obviously well start out group with a lot of connections. You know, he comes from that Spurs system, where Sean Marks, and when he came to the Spurs, uh, Sean Marks was the assistant GM at the time, assistant coach, assistant GM, and the season before that was the last season Sean Marks played. Uh, as a player in Portland. So they had that in, that connection there. So it was no surprise that he came to Brooklyn, especially considering, you know, we've seen Blake Griffin. We see, obviously, James Harden in a different circumstance end up in Brooklyn via trade. So 35 years old, obviously, he's been a journeyman throughout this whole league, going from Blazers to San Antonio now to Brooklyn. And he really just wanted to win a championship. You know, that was the one thing on his mind. And he was, always, like, from the moment he got there, too, he's like, I'm a competitor. I'm going to compete for the starting five spot. So it was it was that game right before, and he just said I was playing, and my heart was feeling weird. It was in a regular heartbeat, and he he was smart enough to really take that and have awareness and say something about it. So for the Philadelphia game, he was scratched off with an illness that was non-COVID related, and there wasn't anything much said outside of that. You know, we kind of just said, okay, he's probably sick. He's dealing with some type of maybe a fever, whatever the case is, and. And we kind of just left it as that. And then, obviously, that morning, like two days ago, on that morning, he came out on social media and announced the retirement himself. So, moving forward, how the Nets can fill, obviously, the Nets are going to waive him, you know, and have an open roster spot. So, when Sean Marks spoke to us yesterday before the game, uh, he mostly talked about how he wants to see this roster fully healthy before he wants to examine, okay, how are we going to fill the roster? Because... The Nets, they're, 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 an interesting, they're in an interesting spot, right? With the front court, they don't really have that big body. They do have DeAndre Jordan, but they don't have that big body that can really guard traditional bigs that can really spread the floor, such as a Joel Embiid. So we saw that with DJ against the Sixers. Obviously, he, he did his best against DeAndre Jordan, pre- did a pretty good job. I mean, against Joel Embiid, he had 39 points on 13 of 19 shooting. But, you know, with Joel Embiid, a center of that caliber, not many guys can guard him, and obviously – but if the season pans out how it's expected with the 76ers and that's most likely ending up in the Eastern Conference Finals to go into the championship, are they going to look at replacing a guy like LaMarcus Aldridge? Even though at this point in the season with the available free agents that are on the market, you can't find a player of LaMarcus Aldridge's caliber that could immediately fill that hole. You could probably go for a discounted center to just give you a big body down low. Or do they go for someone in the front court? So I mean, in the back court, because you see Chris Gioza, he he had a right fracture metaparsal in his hand. He's likely done. Uh, he's mostly done for the rest of the regular season. He could return late second round, even conference finals, if anything. So that's have a decision to make there. And they're low on ball handlers. We've seen Landry Shaman take up the ball, Bruce Brown. We've seen even Kevin Durant take up the ball sometimes. So they're very low on ball handlers. So do they go for a guy? And we've seen Austin Rivers. Obviously, those those signing talks with the Nuggets. Is it going to go proceed to that mark, or you know, the Nets going to swoop in? 
But when Sean Mars was telling us he wants to see this roster fully healthy to see what tools he has in the shed before he could add another one. So that's kind of where we're sitting at right now. Chris, can you go into detail regarding when Aldridge first arrived on this team? Was there any time for him to really to mesh with his teammates? And if so, do you think his departure in a sudden retirement could be a point of a rallying cry for this team? Now, they have a lot of things to be motivated about, but this is a different element in considering the unfortunate circumstances of Aldridge's retirement. Could you see as a, this to be kind of a galvanizing point for this team to, to be motivated to rally behind him and to perform during the playoffs and in, in the NBA Finals if they're fortunate enough to make it there? Yeah, that's a good question because obviously the number one question revolving around this team is chemistry. You know, chemistry is something that sets te- great teams apart from championship teams, right? So we've seen it over the years. A lot of teams with great talent fall short. You know, we've seen it over those years. And talent does make everything. It's all along with chemistry. And if you look at the Nets roster as a whole, starting with the big three, they played nine games together. That's it, you know? So that's a big concern. Obviously with LaMarcus, you know, coming in, that was, that was the big thing because Nash wanted, and that's why De- DeAndre Jordan – um, he had to take a lesser role. He went from being a star starting 36 of the first 48 games to now to then six straight, five straight, do not play, did not play at all. And then saw 10 minutes, 20, 12 minutes, and he starts ramping up. Now he's back in the fold. So with, with this chemistry of this team, it's going to be interesting because the Nets, obviously, they're downplaying that issue. They're, no team is going to say, hey, this is a problem. We need to address it, whatever the case is. The Nets have been saying, hey, we've been utilizing the practice time. Our whole two, our whole group's invested in that elusive first championship goal, that ultimate goal that they keep referring it as. And on top of that, they've been using the practice time. And in Kevin Durant's words, this team is so kind of locked in on that ultimate goal that they talk about basketball even on off days and even on road trips, building that camaraderie. We've seen kind of throughout the whole season, especially that Detroit loss in February, that was a really big turning point for this team because that was a that was an embarrassing loss. And obviously me, the media, and everyone like that, we've really kind of pinpointed saying, hey, you guys, talent is one thing, but can you guys really execute that and turn that and flip that into winning? And we've seen kind of just guys step up. And, you know, the big thing about chemistry, what I see it as, it's not necessarily the chemistry between the stars. It's going to be the chemistry between the stars and how the role players accept their roles. Because the Nets have been shorthanded for almost over a month now. Because you got to date back. You had Kyrie with the first personal absence. Obviously, no one wants to speculate on personal absences. My view on the personal absence is, hey, if your employer gives you the time off, that should be it. You know, that that's how I view it. But then you had Kevin Durant's hamstring injury, which sidelined 23 games. And now you got Harden with a, with a hamstring strain, which he's up to his 11th day currently. And he's going to be traveling with the team to Miami tomorrow. And they play New Orleans on Wednesday. So it'll be interesting to see if he does go against New Orleans on that game, especially since he is traveling. But like I said before, with these role players, they've they've accepted those roles. You see Bruce Brown kind of accepting that starting five, not that starting five, but more so of a kind of a roller and a hover at that five spot. And then you see guys such as Landry Shamit, like I mentioned, DeAndre Jordan. The list goes down of role players that really kind of taken on extra responsibilities and carry on an extra load. So it'll be interesting to see, okay, when this roster is fully presented in front of you, everyone's healthy. Okay, not only who's going to get the amount of touches, who's going to get the minutes, which is another thing that Nash has talked about too, the front court minutes, how he wishes he give everyone front court minutes, but he can't. So it's going to be all interesting to see how it turns out, especially with LaMarcus Aldridge. Sean Marks hit it on the nail. He said, hey, it's a big hit at the end of the day. You know, it's unfortunate that he retired. Steve Nash, like I t- just t- spoke about, DeAndre Jordan, wanted, he wanted 
uh, LMA to get um, inserted into lineup, get those minutes down, get the kind of get the rotations and see what tools are in the shed and see what he could use DeAndre for going forward. Nash said he's going to use more of a matchup based rotation for the center spot, which is interesting for DJ's minutes because he's more traditional. He can't really guard that many centers in today's NBA because they could spread the floor. But, you know, the one thing is with chemistry, and that's the one remaining question. That's the one thing I really see that could keep the Nets in their own way of winning a championship this season. Chris, I wanted to ask you in terms of kind of the drama surrounding this team. Certainly at the start of the year, things were um, kind of a abrasive, certainly, between like KD and Kyrie and the media. Um, and it seems to me that since that point and really since – James Harden joined the team and kind of once we all got over how things ended in Houston and transitioning, seeing that, wow, this is actually a great offensive fit with, you know, putting Harden and Kyrie and KD. And you had Kyrie, of course, making comments like, you know, James Harden is the point guard. I'm the shooting guard. Um, He said at one point, which I, I thought was refreshing and a pleasant surprise. Has there been much less drama with this team than than what we expected going into the season. Yeah, for sure. Because the the one thing about when it comes down to the drama is what I've noticed and other other guys have noticed too covering this team consistently is that they're all locked in on that one ultimate goal. So when you think about it, right, Kyrie Irving's entering his prime. Kevin Durant's at that 31-year-old, 32-year-old, like, you know, in that stage of, okay, he's at that point where he wants to win. He mostly talked about that. And coming back from injury, Kevin Durant told us about it. He said, at this point, it's not so much, okay, it's about the championships. It's not about this. It's mostly just about playing consistent basketball. Because he remember, since his Achilles tear in 2019, which seems very long ago, he hasn't seen that many games of play, especially at a consistent rate, right? And then you look at James Harden, a guy that came over from Houston that really wants to win a championship. That's like the one little accolade that's left for him to really mostly cement his legacy. And especially to do it aside his former teammate Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, the stellar group. And then you got to think about it from a Brooklyn standpoint, too, with their narrative, right? That's their first championship in franchise history. Obviously, every, it, the rivalry with the Knicks is more fan speculated and fan risen. But you got to also think about it from that way is hey, at the end of the day, if the Nets do win a championship and in New York, and obviously, you know, the Knicks, they haven't won since 1976. Like it's, it's all those type of points that really make this team interesting. So with the drama too, is that's one of the reasons they brought in Steve Nash in the very beginning, right? Is because obviously James Harden wasn't there in the beginning and neither was Blake and other, other high level names and household names. But at the same time, they brought in a guy like Steve Nash, that could get earned and quickly earn the respect of the guys that manage those personalities. And on top of that, Steve Nash, the former player, obviously he doesn't have that championship experience as a player, but he was around the Warriors with Kevin Durant. So they had that. Um, experience together and then you look at Kyrie obviously point guard the point guard Steve Nash has praised him throughout this whole entire season for be, just being class act one of the best point guards he's ever seen talented and then Steve Nash is also a player's coach like that's something that DeAndre Jordan spoke about and that's what something made me realize like okay this is when I knew they were all locked in like Steve Nash allows his players to have a little bit of freedom on the court so you know being if you think of as an NBA player like an NBA player it's a 48-minute game, and obviously not a lot of players want to be told what exactly to do throughout that course of the 48 minutes. In this era of basketball, especially within the NBA, play, you've seen a lot, of, a lot of players have the most power they've ever had. It's mm-hmm. a player empowerment league. 
So Steve Nash even said it. I want, I like my team. They could call out their plays. They could do what they want. They, but when they, when he steps in, he could step in, police themselves. He'll police them and call a timeout saying, Hey, this is what we should do. We got to get back on track here. Whatever the case is. Latest situation is obviously the game starts. You see in the nets, they haven't been starting the games well. And, um, no matter how much talent you have on this team, it's very hard to climb uphill throughout the whole entire course of the game. So just to answer your question, I know whole about the kind of just the drama around this team. It's going to be interesting to see come playoff time because that's when the bright lights are on them and when the games really do matter. And especially, like I said before, this team, we haven't seen them fully healthy and gel as a collective unit on the court. So that, those are the two questions. But like I said before, the only thing that's standing away between this Nets, this Nets team and a championship is really themselves and that chemistry and camaraderie. And do you think, you know, speaking of Steve Nash, this is one of the, the questions that I have down here. So mm-hmm. perfect segue. Um, if we see that chemistry mesh and these guys make it, you know, to the finals, let's say it's very impressive or they ultimately win the title. Is that, do you think Steve Nash is going to get a fair amount of credit as a coach for pulling these guys together? Like I, I could kind of see in a way it being difficult for, maybe the media at large or casual basketball fans certainly to give him that respect given how loaded this roster is. Do you think he'll, he'll get his praise if they make you, if they accomplish this ultimate goal? Yeah, that's a very good question. Cause you gotta think about it from an MVP standpoint too, right? With the MVP, we've seen that obviously the two leading candidates are both centers and Jokic and Embiid. But you, when you think about it from the Harden standpoint, he wasn't necessarily getting that love for MVP because of that supporting cast around him. Right. So if you look at Steve Nash, for example, if you wanted to even talk about coach of the year, which I believe it should be Monty Williams, what he's doing with the Suns right now, or it should be Quinn Snyder with the Jazz. Those are my two kind of picks who I would lean towards. I'd argue that, yeah. That, that, I, I would say those two are my favorites, starting with Monty. But like getting back to Nash, the, Sean Marks did a great job of kind of surrounding Nash with a well-experienced coaching staff. Because you look at Mike D'Antoni, someone that's been around this league for – decades knowing NBA basketball, someone that's coach Nash. And then you add Amari Stonemeyer in there as a player development. And then you got other guys such as retaining Jack Vaughn, who succeeded in the bubble with the bubble nets, you know, someone where the nets didn't, he knows how the role players work. He's a coach that gained respect out of that really made the nets really one of the most exciting teams to watch at the bubble without a star because they were really hit by COVID and really hit by injuries. And then you look at Ime Udoka, who's, who's probably going to get in the head coaching job this summer. Uh, depending on obviously what openings fill up and if he gets that opportunity, which I think he will. He's a defenseless specialist with the Sixers, and obviously throughout his time with the Spurs, he was also in that Spurs cast. So the, like getting back to that thing, it's like the MVP conversation, right? A lot of players, a lot of people don't like, and you got to think about the Nets as a whole too. The Nets have been kind of portrayed as that villain team now, right? Because they're getting a lot of stars. Everyone's saying they're really buying their way to a championship here. Is it fair what they did? And everyone's starting to raise questions whether the buyout market should change, the rules should change based on what happened with LaMarcus and Blake. So it's going to be interesting to see how it kind of goes forward. I think with Steve, he's in a comfortable spot because obviously we know if you if you really dissected D'Antoni's plays over the last decade, D'Antoni's has his fingerprints written all over that offense. And if you look at the defense, it's mostly Ime Udoka and Nash has a big – he's always said defense is that number one priority throughout the season. But you look at Ime Udoka and Jack Vaughn's defense as well, especially with the zone coverages and the switching defense, their fingerprints are all over that too. So there's there's a lot of balancing and stuff, but as, as you could expect, Nash is a rookie head coach. Head coaching is a lot more different than being a, a player. 
And throughout this league, we've all seen great players, the Hall of Fame players that hopped in the coaching that don't do so well. It's always kind of those role players like a Steve Kerr, or you kind of look down those lines throughout the whole years. It's always those role players that really succeed as head coaches. So the Nets did a very good job surrounding Steve with that supporting cast. But I think overall, he will get that due respect and that due diligence kind of uh, just overall love from the fans. Say if they do go all the way and they win the championship and everything like that. Chris, to that point about the Nets being villains, uh, two questions for you. First, do you think if this was a normal NBA season, the pressure would be a lot worse? I didn't. I just remember the Miami Heat, everything they went through, it just seemed to be like people wanted to rip their heads off every time they went into opposing teams' arena. And particularly, you know, if the season was normal, you know, the games against Houston or my um, games against Cleveland or Golden State, et cetera. Um, considering that the fact that, you know, this season's been how it has been, um, do you think they've been shielded a little bit just in terms of that, you know, opposing fan reaction? I mean, the, the closest thing I have seen as when the Nets play the 76ers and fans chanting Kevin Durant sucks, which I think is a normal mm-hmm. thing you hear at every arena. <laughs> I don't know why that was a story. Yeah, so I, I just don't know. How has this team really felt the heat? of being um, that villain um, as compared to, you know, other NBA teams that have kind of taken that similar mantle in the past? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, it's, it's obviously they got, they got a little, little, little uh, slide by, right. They got, they got away with it a little bit because with the fans in the arena, if you look at this Nets team that really rolls into any team, the Nets said it best and everyone knows it. Any team that's really willing to prove something such as an under 500 team, which we've seen all season. If you look at the records, the Nets, actually have better records against above 500 teams than they do below 500 teams because those below 500 teams give them the best shot. So if you add in audience and obviously crowd noise, and like you said, Houston, obviously James Harden with limited fans when he did return, there was a mix of boos and, and cheers. But if there was a full arena, they could it, you could tell that the, there could be an, a lot of momentum on the game. It would have made the Rockets more hungry to win that game. And same thing with any other teams. Like you look down the line, any fi- under 500 teams – that are really trying to prove themselves. And obviously if you beat the nets and you're under 500 team, your confidence has taken a big jump and you're just going to kind of roll into that momentum and carry, keep carrying that over. So with the villain thing, yeah, the, most definitely. Cause if there was, if there was fans in the stands, especially in playoffs, like, you know, in you guys see on social media with the Ben Simmons kind of brewing up that Sixers rivalry, kind of talking about, Hey, I'm defensive player of the year. I, despite Kyrie Irving scoring a lot of points on me, I held him to this plus minus. Was was first off, that was the first time I've ever heard a player use a plus minus in an argument, which was very interesting. Like <laughs> on, on top of that, it's just like, you know, it's it the Nets wherever they would go, they would be portrayed as that villain. You know, you could kind of compare it a little bit to that first season when Kevin Durant joined the Warriors. You know, joined that 70, 73 team Warriors. To that, okay, you know, you do have that respect that fans will go to the arena to see that talent and accept that, and you'll get a lot. You'll, your fan base will grow more nationally. Obviously, you know, Harden dra- dragged a lot of fans to Brooklyn. You see Blake Griffin; he also dragged his old kind of his uh, stands to Brooklyn and stuff like that. So you kind of just look down the board. But overall, this team—if it was a regular season—they would definitely be going through a lot of more adversity from crowd noise per se. Um, one more question for you from me, and Matt has any additional questions. I'll pass it to him. Um, yeah, I, I want to discuss Kevin Durant. Um, yeah. He's he's a very much like an enigma, and it, since you covered his team, maybe you could shed some light on this. 
why do you think he engages in issues like not related to <laughs> stuff on the court? Like this whole deal with the Michael Rappenport, just him, you know, with other fans on Twitter. I mean, I've heard your argument of, oh, well, he doesn't view, you know, people on Twitter as just believe him. He can engage with other people. Um, but at the same time, this is a waste of his time. I mean, he's yeah. Kevin Durant. I mean, he's a legend and a Hall of Famer. So, and yet even engaging with Michael Rappenport in these like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, just little um, arguments that turn into just a massive deal in terms of the threats he was doing to Michael Rappenport's wife. So he can just yeah. take us into his mindset. Like, why is he so engaged on proving every single naysayer wrong? I mean, that's just impossible in life. I mean, you can't go up to everybody that says something about you and just <laughs> yell at them. So what is this guy's deal? Can you guys take us into his mindset as to why he is the way he is? Well, you know, like with it's like kind of with any star, you know, it's it's one of those things that it's it's an it's not an ego thing, but it's like a social media thing because you know with social media, especially with Kevin Durant, you know, we've seen that track history throughout those years that he's engaged with social media content. You know, the Oklahoma City return being called cupcake. You know, those type of those type of memes, and you know, Kevin Durant's one of those people that like. It's not like one of those, he's not one of those stars that kind of just, okay, ignore the trash talk, whatever the case is. He likes to kind of feed into it a little bit. He likes that fan engagement. If you look at, if you look at who he follows on Twitter, it's a lot of Nets fan pages too and stuff like that. So he likes being involved with the community because he's also a very good businessman. And obviously those two don't intertwine too well, but at the same time, he has, he has a lot of knowledge what goes on outside the hardwood. Obviously we all look at Kevin Durant as arguably the greatest scorer of all time. You could compare him. I've seen comparisons. Obviously, you could say, okay, maybe he's like this era is Larry Bird, but more so a more dynamic scorer. But, you know, with Kevin, it's just one of those things. Because with Michael Rappaport, you know, he's it, Kevin's not afraid to speak his mind and do whatever he did. Obviously, those those direct messages with Michael Rappaport, I can guarantee you he didn't expect those to go public, you know, to, based on the language. And he apologized for that. He The Nets brought him on when he was injured, and he apologized for that. And, in fact, after yesterday's game, a reporter came on and uh, asked about that. He said, hey, has Michael Rappaport reached out to you at all, or have you reached out to Michael at all since those DMs? And he mostly just said, next question, a very kind of tone that said, hey, that's over. I don't want to even talk about that anymore. And and when he was apologizing for the remarks he made, you know, the language used and, and those type of derogatory terms, he mostly said, my head's going to be straight on focusing basketball. You know, like I said before, he has this guy hasn't played consistent basketball really since 2019 before the Achilles tear, and it seems years ago. Like you know, so it's one of those things that he's one of those superstars that have a vocal voice on Twitter, and that's just who he is as a person. You know, it's not it's not per se um, anything really to more so look over that. You know, everyone has the ability to have their freedom of speech on social media, and he's just proven to be one of those guys that really just say what's on their mind and hey if you you like it you like it and if you take a shot at him don't don't expect to not get a reply you know he's gonna say what he wants to say yeah i mean i you know with with who kevin durant looks up to and takes inspiration from he he's talked about previously his respect for the legends of the game i mean is is this reaction and and how he behaves on social media kind of like you know, if Jordan were under social media, may we have seen the same thing with kind of the, the competitive nature? I don't know. Can you speak to um, from what you know about who Kevin Durant takes inspiration from? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because it's it's interesting, right? Because those those things are obviously tack on to legacy, right? Because in today in this climate of just the world in general, obviously in the eighties, nineties, social media wasn't a thing, right? So you can't you can't see what Jordan would have done. But we've seen back in the day. I don't know how how uh, well rounded you guys are with like pre like the eighties and seventies basketball knowledge with Jordan and everything. But he was he also that was a very big social justice movement, and we saw Jordan was very. You know, with the businesses and voting and, you know, those type of inclement, those type of situations, he often stayed quiet. He didn't take the Muhammad Ali approach or he didn't take the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar approach. He kind of just stayed towards focus towards his game, you know. So Kevin Durant is a different type of aspect and a different type of guy in that respect. You know, he's mostly one of those guys that, hey. He speaks his mind. You know, he's not going to be one of those guys that kind of just take insults, whatever the case is. You could say, hey, he does have sensitive skin. However you guys want to really word it. But at the end of the day, it's not like the NBA is telling him not to do it because the NBA has been one of those sports leagues that have proudly represented and mostly taking um, kind of just pride in having their players have a voice. They're not saying, hey, censor this content. You can't say this or you'll get fined for this. You know, obviously, KD got fined for what he said. He got the maximum fine for that penalty. But at the end of the day, that money to Kevin Durant is not really much, you know. And at and on top of that, it's it's one of those things as, you know, maybe that, that I know Steve Nash explained. There was internal conversations with Kevin Durant and Steve and the organization about the terms used and the derogatories. And he said, hey, I want to keep those details of the conversation in-house, but we could obviously all generate and speculate what that conversation was directed towards in that com- towards that conversation. So with the legacy, you know, it's one of those things because, you know, Kevin Durant, he doesn't necessarily – like he spoke about the other day, he, didn't really, he doesn't really care too much about his legacy because, you know, with the Golden State move, joining a 73-1 team based on who he was with Oklahoma City, joining the team that beat him and everything, that's already a huge legacy hit to begin begin with and then you have the other stuff but like i've said before and how like i've always said since he joined brooklyn that kevin durant could really build something in brooklyn it doesn't matter who the supporting cast is around the nets will always be viewed as kevin durant's team you know it's not kyrie irving's team it's not james Harden's team it's not like blake griffin or or at that time you know any other guy's teams it's kevin durant's team so however this team success rolls on if they win one championship if they win zero and whatever in that era, they build a dynasty. You never know what's going to happen, right? But it, that the whole team's success is going to be on the back of Kevin Durant's legacy more than anyone on this team. So I hope, I hope that answered your question. So I would say that's kind of how I view it. The obviously, public appearances, your social media, that all has a little impact on your legacy. But I would more so say when you think about stuff 20, 30 years, 40 years down the line, that stuff kind of fades a little bit and your accomplishments rise more before anything. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. Um, one more question for you. Yeah. I, I have to get your opinion because Justin and I, as we mentioned before we got started here, Justin and I are based in Albuquerque. You mentioned to us you're in New Jersey. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on what has it been like? I know we're hard to believe it, but we're almost 10 years removed from yeah. this being the New Jersey Nets and now moving obviously to Brooklyn. What has it been like in New Jersey? How has that relationship been with this franchise since then? Well, it's very quiet because, you know, New Jersey is one of those states that's that supports New York teams. It's always been like that. You know, you got especially in the area I live in, it's primary Yankees, Giants, and then obviously, you know, 
then you had basketball, which was the Nets, and then the Devils, right, for the NHL, right? And then you got other guys that are Mets, Jets, you know, there's always those type of, type of combinations. But with New Jersey, it was it was it was kind of a it was a unique era, right? Because you had in the early 2000s, 2001, 2002, then 2002, 2003, those were back to back finals appearances. Obviously, got swept by the Lakers in 2001, 2002, and then 2002, 2003, they obviously went four one to the Spurs. And then since that point, they obviously let that kind of group drag on with Jay Kidd, RJ, Kerry Kittles, you know, Keith Van Horn. They let that drag out. Then they went through the rebuilding phase. They had a 12-1 season, and then they relocated to Brooklyn. So I think that fan love from New Jersey get, did kind of diminish a little bit, but there's mm-hmm. still a lot of fans in New Jersey. And, you know, that was the big thing because I grew up uh, – I'm 23 now, and, like, I, growing up, I went to a lot of games in the Izod Center, Prudential Center, you know, and those type of things, $5 tickets. You know, they, they wanted you to go. They wanted you to go. They did everything you could – to get you to go right and hmm. you couldn't beat those prices and with the team moving to brooklyn when you look back at the new jersey nets legacy it was one of those new jersey teams that like you know you felt pride with especially coming from someone who was who's born and raised in new jersey because hmm. you have giants hey giants and jets they both play in new jersey they play in metlife right here at east rutherford right and then but it's always viewed as the New York Giants. You know, they do practice in, like, the Jets practice in Florham Park, New Jersey, which is very suburban. Like, that is mm-hmm. that is as New Jersey as you can get. And when you look at the move to Brooklyn, it makes all sense. You know, obviously a lot of teams hated the Nets to go to Brooklyn, you know, get that big market, you know. But when you look at the relocation, it makes sense. They New Jersey, it was hard kind of to attract free agents at that point, stage. You know, they, they really had the, like you saw in the later half of their years, they had the trade for Darren Williams to really get a star. They couldn't really attract any key free agents. That's how it's always been in New Jersey. They had the trade for Jason Kidd, then Vince Carter, you know, then obviously, you know, RJ and everything like that. But, like, they with New Jersey, if, you, if you're a New Jersey guy, you have to respect what the Nets did because they went to a bigger market, Brooklyn, which kind of offers players a more suburban field than a New York type of market. You know, you have you could have a house. You could have – it's easier kind of to raise a family in that atmosphere. It's also, and when you look at just how Sean Marks and especially the Prokhorov group with Arena Pavlova and everyone, how they built the nets. If you look at the Knicks, for example, to get a little off tangent, their, their practice court is in Terrytown. And that's, that's literally outside the city, probably with traffic and everything. That's probably a good amount over an hour away from Madison Court Garden. You look at Brooklyn, their practice facility to the Barclays Center is literally a 10 to 15 minute walk. It's not long at all. And, you know, with players, they like to have that where everything's all in one because with living situations such as the Knicks, a lot of those players do live in kind of that Westchester area, Connecticut, too, in those houses rather than actually in the city. If you look at Brooklyn, for example, a lot of them have apartments and stuff and they just literally, okay, Barclays Center practice court, it's all right there. And a lot of players take notice of that because it's easier for them to adjust and get that community feel. So when you look back at the New Jersey Nets legacy, obviously it's one of those legacies that, hey, they didn't win it all, but that did bring a lot of glory years. It's going to be one of those – it's hard to compare it to like an era. You know, it's not like you can't compare it to like Seattle. It's obviously Seattle Supersonics basketball is very different because Seattle Supersonics basketball is huge, and I really want them to bring back a team. But per se, you know, when it's all said and done, you know, you could see it maybe – if, say, if Oklahoma City Thunder relocates, you know, you could kind of compare those, you know, if they don't win a championship and they had those finals appearances, you know, 
you could compare and contrast those, but that's how it really some of the New Jersey Nets legacy. You could, but looking, moving, kind of looking ahead and looking at where they are now, there's no one should really complain that they relocated. Gotcha. Okay. Chris. Oh, go ahead, Matt. You have one more. Yeah, I just had a quick follow-up. I'm actually really glad that you brought up the Knicks. Um, mm-hmm. we, we've asked a few different guests this question. Maybe, Justin, this is where you were going. But totally. I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, let's say the the Nets go on a tear for the next five years. Let's say they win two or three titles, beat what the Knicks currently have. What are the chances? And again, I, I'm asking you specifically because you're in the area covering the Nets, you know, and, and you have a lot of time, I'm sure, reading about and uh, thinking about the Knicks too. Is there any scenario where you feel the Nets being better managed like this and maybe having more recent success can kind of take over New York, so to speak? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Now, that's one of those been a uh, bit high conversation points. And my answer to that, you know, it's it's not going to be in the it's not going to be in this decade or the next decade. When you look at the NBA and how the NBA is going, it's a very it's player based. Like I talked about, it's player empowerment, right? And you look at how teams and guys, players like how fans grow up. Like you guys, for example, like me, right? We all attracted towards one player on one team, and we kind of grew up idolizing that. Then you look at how the Nets are now, right? Kyrie Irving, James Harden, Kevin Durant, all Hall of Famers, all have big fan bases, and all have signature shoe lines. Market, they market themselves. They're very marketable players. And you look at how the Nets are built, especially the Knicks will always the Knicks are likely to be New York's team for many years to go on. But you look at kids such as in five to ten to twelve years old that are in this area. They never, or even before that, you, like Kevin Durant spoke a little bit about it when he signed with the Nets. When the, when Kevin Durant was growing up, the Knicks were never good. You know, it wasn't, it, obviously their their last really winning era per se was that Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, you know, that rivalry. You can make an argument, hey, it was the Carmelo, Anthony, Amari, Stoudemire, you know, Chauncey Billups, that era of Knicks. But they didn't really do much. They got to the first round, a second round, and boom, they're out, right? It was kind of how the Nets were with that Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett thing. So when you look forward, when you look kind of ahead down the line, obviously championships sweeten any scenario, right? That You could get one championship, two championships, three championships. Then they build a dynasty. Then at that point, they're known as the NBA's New York team, you know, throughout the NBA universe. But if you look at kind of just – potentially worldwide, you know, Knicks are one of those franchises like the Celtics and Lakers that have a huge fan base following that carries over decades on decades because they're one of the oldest franchises that ever exist. So like I said before, if they, if this, if the Nets build a dynasty and have that Kyrie Irving, James Harden, Kevin Durant, you know, the Blake Griffin's there as well. That has a big following as well. Like I mentioned, marketing has a big thing to do with it. Kids, you know, they grow up playing basketball, have that dream of playing basketball. They wear the Kyrie Irving shoes, the Kevin Durant shoes, the James Harden shoes. And then those come in Brooklyn colorways, you know. So it's all about that cultural feel. And it will be interesting to see. Obviously, winning, it, this doesn't. This all doesn't happen if they don't win. But if they win, I think, two championships or three championships and really build that dynasty and the kids look ahead, because like I said before, kids kids today, they don't see the Knicks as a winning team. You know, in New York, I was in New York today, and I go to New York quite often. It's all, it's a Knicks town on cabs, New York Knicks, Madison Square Garden, world's most famous arena, all that stuff. 
for all that glory and all that culture and all that thing that could only stretch so far right it's like a coach that's won in the early 2000s that's still viewed as a good coach you know it's it has that longevity factor i guess you could say it's kind of like that doc rivers too you know you see doc rivers how long is that oh 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 like that 2008 championship with the celtics really going to continue to drag on here yes he's a good coach and he's represented by players and all the coaches, all the teams that he's really coached has been really good and kind of contenders. But he hasn't really won a lot of championships since and it's been over a decade now, you know. So you got to we got it's like kind of that scenario where it's it drags on. You could only keep dragging and kind of milking that that legacy factor of the New York Knicks so far. And then if the Nets can complement that with winning and like I said before, with the marketing of the superstars, I think it'll be a Nets town in 20, 30 years. You know, it's one of those things. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's like how long before the Knicks become the OK Boomer team? Um, exactly. No, it's like <laughs> yeah, because it's it's one of those things. That obviously, like like I've said, I've, I've I've been one of these supporters throughout the whole time. I want the Knicks to be very good, and I want the Nets to be very good. Because what's going on in Los Angeles? If that happened in New York, that would be, just be something special. Because uh, obviously, you guys are in New Mexico, and you have more of that West Coast experience, which you guys can relate with that Los Angeles Lakers. You know, the Phoenix Suns now on the rise a little bit, so you have that experience. But over here on the West Coast, I'm on the East Coast with the Nets and obviously the Knicks. The New York's always been a basketball city, right? You've seen the city really thrive. You look at back in the '80s with Spike Lee, and like when the Knicks were really good. Obviously, the Nets were in New Jersey, so they're kind of irrelevant in that standpoint. But if you have both of these suit both these teams becoming fire like superpower teams and really talented teams that back it up with winning and have that turn New York City into a really good basketball town, have that inner city rivalry, that crosstown rivalry. It's something special to see. So I that I really want to see that. Well, Chris, I think this is a very compelling subject and you brought up a lot of great points. And I want to ask you in particular with the Knicks, just with James Dolan, because it's yeah. not only they're losing, it's the way they treat their fans. And you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier as well in terms of the players not actually living in New York, in New York City, um, compared to the Brooklyn Nets in which they, you know, they live within the community. I mean, that seems to be a lot of damage that could be done in the future now. Granted, they are having a, a decent season this season, but mm-hmm. we'll have to see how that plays out compared to Brooklyn if they win the titles. So, is it realistic that the Knicks can really, I mean, what is the timeline here? Because I've been hearing that for years and years about the Knicks being restored to the glory days. And not only that, their fans are extremely loyal. So it doesn't seem to be like this breaking point of loyalty towards the team, but the team not showing that love back in terms of not only wins, but respecting its fans. So especially with this, not only Brooklyn, but also the Barclays Center itself in terms of big events, I just I mean, this goes into a lot more details, but I just see a lot more of this bigger concerts, bigger fight events going to the Barclays Center as compared mm-hmm. to Madison Square Garden, if you can correct me if I'm wrong. But just uh, mm-hmm. I just feel like ever since the Barclays Center was open, it seems like the attention of like New York has been placed on, on that arena and that team itself. So is there? I know you cover the Nets, but in, mm-hmm. in order to get that, I guess, rivalry with the, the Knicks to be, I guess, a reality – what do you what do you foresee happening? Do you see James Dolan having to actually sell the team, or do you foresee the Knicks turning it around with James Dolan being the owner? Because right now it's a podcast series from the Athletic, basically discussing the turmoil of the Knicks being a, a terrible franchise. So, I mean, what does it have to take for the, I guess the Knicks to really rise up to where Brooklyn is now? 
Yeah, you know, because we've seen the Knicks. Obviously, they're good. They got Julius Randle now. You know, they're on that rise. You know, they're 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 building something. They're building that culture. And the reason for that too is you got to think too. Dole, I don't know how big of hockey guys you got or hockey fans you guys are, but Dolan owns the New York Rangers too, right? It's part of the Madison Square Garden Company. And what is it? What? Why were the Rangers really good? Is because he gave the GM really authority to do what he wants and him to stay out of that spotlight. That's kind of what he's been doing this year. You know, he's been having Leon Rose. He said, hey, Leon, here's the keys. Do what you want to do and kind of just build something up from the ground. We haven't heard much. Well, I don't think we've heard much from him at all this year, right? So it, that's the thing because with Dolan, you know, him, obviously it's a very bad look for him to kick out fans for that type of stuff. Fans are going to be fans. You know, if you're going to have that type of job and you're going to have that type of authority and your team is doing that bad and you know how much your fans care about this team doing well. You know, that word patience with the New York Knicks, that's been viewed quite often, you know, and over the past decade, two years, whatever the case, decade, 20 years since Patrick Ewing era, whatever the case is. The thing behind that is it's that the, the Knicks fans don't want patience. They don't want to hear patience anymore. They see what's going on across the Manhattan Brooklyn Bridge right now with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving and James Harden and what happened there. And you look at where the Nets were in 2016. They had no draft picks. They had Kevin, they literally traded the, their whole off their whole office for Kevin Garnett. Sean Marks built this out of nothing. Obviously, that's very rare for an NBA team to do. But like you, you brought up a great point with the Barclays Center, right? And that that's the thing because the Barclays Center is one of those arenas that it was built obviously fairly recently. It's got a lot of new technology. You see a lot of new boxing events go there. You know, it's a WWE events, concerts, you know, obviously Madison Square Garden. It still holds that glory, you know, especially with rock and bands as general. Because obviously in the 80s, 70s, when music concerts were very lively at that time, more so, you know, having that cultural feel where kind of the whole population enjoyed one genre of music, that... um that that legacy still goes on you know whenever you see okay a closing tour such as like a fleetwood mac or a abandoned general right and they're at madison square garden that place is going to sell out in a half hour because of the legacy factor but sports is different right it's it, like i said before with the nets with the knicks it's only so many years that they could milk out that hey this is the mecca of basketball this is this is the garden these are the knicks you know and and at that time especially when you see how Dolan treats the fans, what happened with Spike Lee. Obviously, Charles Oakley is the biggest one out of all of them. What happened there? Get him getting a real mostly thrown out of the arena band in front at a Knicks game. It wasn't something like Spike Lee that happened kind of behind closed doors and it took a leaked video to kind of get it out there. It was in the middle of a it was a second quarter in the middle of a game. And the games paused and everyone was watching it. It was a nationally televised game too, so that didn't help out. So it was a disaster. So that, that, that just goes back to the, the point with the, with the Nets is with the winning. If they could complement that winning, and especially with the type of talent they have that do that winning. Like you have talked about that, marketing is a key point in sports, you know. If you looked at the top jersey sales this past year, the, net, the Nets are literally top five. James Harden, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant are top five. And you can imagine there's probably a good sporting cast that got the Blake Griffin jerseys. And, you know, the kind of the list goes down and follows, right? But it's going to be interesting to kind of see how it portrays out with that kind of approach with the Barclays Center kind of taking over MSG, you know, because it's it, at the end of the day, it kind of it, it will take more than the Nets to per se do that, you know. But at the end of the day, when, a, when your team is winning inside that arena and building something special, selling out arenas, 
you know, and like I said before, Brooklyn's more of a a, a, a neighborhood and a borough that's more that's more kind of directed and complemented more, at least in my opinion, towards raising a family and having that instead of being in the middle of the heart of New York City, you know. You can have a house, you got a front lawn, you can have a driveway, you can have cars. You know, all that feels attracts to a lot of players and celebrities as well. And you see a lot of celebrities come out of that. So it's gonna it's gonna see one of those it's gonna be like I said, it's gonna be kind of be like the Nets taking over New York, like Matt asked me about a little while ago. You know, it's gonna be one of those. So you gotta wait it out maybe a decade or so, but they're definitely the Nets are definitely on the right track right now. The Knicks are not far behind, but at the same time, they got a lot of work to do to really catch up. Well, Chris, we can talk to you about this subject for hours on end. But uh, thank you for joining the show. Really appreciate it. Please let our listeners know where they can find you on social media and then what you're up to for the rest of this year as well. Mm -hmm. Well, first and foremost, thank you guys for having me on. Matt and Justin, I really appreciate it. But, yeah, for the listeners, you can find me at SB on Twitter. And you can find my work at SBNationsNetsDaily.com. I'm also the co-host of the Wingspan podcast and the author of Basketball Beyond Boards, The Globalization of the NBA, a book about the globalization, the history about the globalization of the NBA. And, um, yeah, that, that's kind of where you can find me in a nutshell. You know, I'm kind of all over the place now with the Nets being good. But, um, but yeah, that's kind, of, that's kind of where I am. So thank you guys again for the opportunity for me to come on your show and talk some Nets and hoops in general. Yeah, you're welcome, Chris. It will be a pleasure to have you on any time in the future. Uh, thanks for joining the show. Really appreciate it. Well, certainly, guys. You, guys. you guys know how to reach me, so more than willing to do it again. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, Chris.